Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast with Cincinnati host Stephen Brittingham. Experience meaningful and in-depth interviews with Hollywood's most interesting people. Enjoy the show. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. Welcome to a Hollywood and Beyond special presentation. Gail Russell Biography with Jeffrey Mark. Hi, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for joining me today as we remember the life and career of Gail Russell, one of Hollywood's most beautiful women to ever grace the silver screen. My special guest is Hollywood entertainer and historian Jeffrey Mark. In a storytelling manner, Jeffrey will share Gail's personal and artistic journey with you in a fascinating, emotional, and heartfelt approach. Born on September 21, 1924, in Chicago, Illinois, Gail Russell moved to Los Angeles, California with her family as a teenager. Her striking beauty caught the attention of Paramount Pictures, offering her a contract at the age of 18. This at a time when Gail's family was suffering financially and Gail was sleeping on the floor. Despite having no actual acting experience, Gail would go on to stardom at a rather quick pace working opposite some of Hollywood's most iconic leading men, Alan Ladd, Ray Milan, and John Wayne. You came back? Yes. Why? I don't know exactly. Why did you go away without saying anything? I don't know that exactly either. I think it was because I frightened you. I know that sounds strange that I should frighten you, but I mean it. You were frightened because I was stupid. You thought that living with me would be tiresome and dull after a while. Tiresome and dull because all, all I knew, raised since a baby here on the farm, was our belief. That people love, marry, and stay together forever after that. I'm not such a fool not to know that outside worldly places, people love it. It doesn't have to follow that they marry and stay together forever. I know that sometimes they separate. Are you ever going to run down and let me talk? No, Court, that's what you were afraid of, that I tie myself around your neck, and when you got tired, you couldn't be rid of me. And I made up my mind, if you came back, I'd tell you this, that whatever you want, Court, you can be. If I go away, you go with me. 
I go away, they go away. I will return near the conclusion of the episode with some final thoughts and a very important message. Now, let's take a trip back to classic Hollywood as Jeffrey Mark shares with you Gail Russell biography here on Hollywood and Beyond. Thank you. It is my true honor and pleasure to welcome him back to the show. Jeffrey Mark, welcome back to Hollywood and Beyond, sir. Well, I think the honor and the pleasure is mine because you, you invited me. I'm just so pleased that I could get to spend some more time with our friends out there. Well, you are most welcome, sir, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about Gail Russell. You've chosen a very, very interesting topic. And I'm going to share with my friends out there, and, and your friends, because they're more your friends than mine, why I say it's so interesting. Before uh, we went on the air just now, uh, we were talking, Stephen and I, about her. And if, if you're a, fr- a friend or a fan of hers, if you're someone who's admired her films and admired her work and wondered about her, uh, if you go looking out and about and around for information about her, uh, you find crickets. There's been really, until this show, nothing majorly done talking about her films, her life, what happened, what happened to a woman who was a major movie star back in the days when the studio system was still in practice and people were still signed to long-term contracts and you had people, writers, directors, publicity people, hair people, makeup people, molding you and, and creating events just to fit your personality and your talents, because that doesn't exist anymore, and it hasn't existed since the late 1950s. And here is this great beauty, and most of the people, most of the people we can probably point to Judy Garland as somebody else who fell between the cracks. Most of the people talk about the studio system and say we were so protected. They did everything for us. Everything was first class. They taught us how to sing. They taught us how to dance. They taught us how to act. They took us first class around the country to do publicity. If we wanted a new house, they got it for us. If we needed a new car, they picked it out for us. If we needed a new hairstyle, they provided it. All we had to do was show up and be creative and use our talents. And people like Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy and Lucille Ball all said, this was, this was tremendous for us. We made a huge amount of money and just got to work really hard and do what we love doing. And then there were the people like Gail Russell for whom the system not only didn't work, but it actually destroyed her. So I think that's, for the next however long we're going to be talking, that's the story we're going to be hearing out there. Well, like many of the people I've gotten to know through the years in show business, uh, Gail couldn't be more Midwestern if she tried. I don't know. There are, there are two towns, and you're close to one of them, uh, that seem to produce 
a tremendous amount of creative people. And except for you, they all leave and go somewhere else. <laughs> but the two places are Cleveland and Chicago. I, I can't tell you how many people in show business I know who were born and spent their early years in one of these two places. There must be something in the water because all this talent comes out, but then all of this talent is transplanted to New York or to California. So her early life, she's a Midwestern girl, and she's there until she's a teenager. And that's where the problems become. I don't know how I'd feel about it, because she developed physically very young. So she's a young teenager with a woman's body, the face of an angel, and is getting a lot of attention for being really, really, really pretty. And her family moves out to California. And despite whatever the studio publicity might say, uh, things were not good. I, I don't know if her parents didn't think things through. I don't know if her parents... Maybe they weren't the smartest tools in the shed. But basically, they went out west on vacation and found themselves putting money down on a house and some furniture. And then they got there and didn't have the money to really keep any of it up. So, you know, she's a teenager literally sleeping on the floor on newspapers because she doesn't have a bed. And she's talent scouted. And uh, that's not an easy thing to do. Let's talk about being talent scouted, because I've been talent scouted. You have to be somewhere, at a school, at a theater. You have to be somewhere where your physicality and perhaps your talent is seen by someone. Now, when I was all oh, about eight, I was talent scouted by, of all places, Desilu Studio, and some of our friends who are old enough might remember Art Linkletter, and some of our friends who are old enough might remember Danny Kay. And Mr. Linkletter and Mr. Kay wanted to be on their programs. Desi wanted to sign me to a contract. I never found out what show, because my parents said, no, he's eight years old, he needs to be a kid. I fooled them. At 15, I was in show business. But in, in Gail's case, that she was talent scouted, just because she was so pretty meant they paid her 50 bucks a week and her family needed that 50 bucks to eat. Maybe and perhaps they wouldn't wake up with newsprint on their faces because that's the kind of life they were living. So take a step back now. A Chicago girl brought up with Midwestern weather, Midwestern ethics, Midwestern society. Because there is such a thing back then. We're a little more diverse today. Back, back when we're talking about in the 20s and 30s, very, uh, and I'm using this word carefully, homogeneous. Lots of folks who are very much alike and have very similar backgrounds and similar ethnicities. And she comes to California even in the 20s, people made jokes that Los Angeles was the place of fruits and nuts. I don't think they necessarily meant 
mentally ill and gay. They just meant people whose lifestyles were different, who didn't wear suits and ties, women who wore slacks, people who didn't live as structured a life as most people were living in the rest of the United States at the time. And I think Gail's parents fell into that. They were a little more bohemian. But I know, coming from the East Coast and growing up there and then spending my first 30 years on the East Coast for the most part, when you come to the West Coast, there's a whole sort of cultural phenomenon that happens. The restaurants are different. The stores are different. Radio and television is different. The press is different. And it takes a while to get used to it. And there are people who literally come to the West Coast, spend some time, and get out because they can't adjust to it. And perhaps Gail's family falls into that arena as well. It was a little too different for them. So she's transplanted. She doesn't get to go to high school with her friends. She's sleeping on the floor. There's not enough money. There's not enough food to eat. And now she's come to the attention uh, when she's just barely 18 of people who are going to use her. And again, I have to define uh, the words. I don't mean harm her, use her. I mean the words that they use in show business, exploitation. Exploitation is the term they used to use for publicity. Taking someone's whatever and finding a way to spin a story about it to make those of us who are watching a film or listening to the radio or looking at television or reading a magazine or a newspaper interested in them. And they all, all being the studios, NGM, 20th Century Fox, her studio, Paramount, RKO, Columbia, Republic, Monogram, and a whole bunch of independent producers had to put a new film in theaters every week. And hopefully they were good, and hopefully we bought tickets to see them. Well, they felt that actresses, actors, were commodities to be used, to be exploited. Ah, Here's a pretty new face that we can put in some films, and if she actually has any talent, we can make money off of her. We will make more money back than we are paying her. We will make a profit. And that's how they saw the performers. And I don't know that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, unless the performer has personal problems, and then there becomes a problem with that. In her case, although she was gorgeous, I mean, really, seriously, folks, if you've never seen a picture of, of Gail when she was young, she's just beautiful. She's one of those people the camera cannot take a bad photo of her. She looks a little bit like Betty Grable. She looks a little bit like Harriet Nelson. She looks a little bit like Lucille Ball. She looks a little bit like Carol Lombard. Beautiful eyes, beautiful smile, gorgeous cheekbones, beautiful hair, a gorgeous figure. But she is almost, and I use this term lightly, almost mentally ill in that 
she is chronically shy. Now, I was talking with our host that last night I was at an event at the Hollywood Museum from Lucille Ball. I walked a red carpet. I did 12, 13, 14 interviews. I had hundreds of pictures taken of me. I love it. I'm a ham bone. I love being in the public eye. I love performing. I love talking to you guys. I love that you're listening to my voice right now. Well, that's great because this is what I do. But what if walking a red carpet caused my heart to palpitate and my hands to sweat? What if having a microphone shoved in my face caused me to literally shake? What if I got so frightened by anyone asking me a question that I felt like I was going to get pass out and, and get dizzy and, and can't eat? Well, that means I'm in the wrong business. Well, Gail, that was her reaction to being in the public eye. Just, just this quarter away from a total panic. But the family needs the money, and she makes her first film. There may be six or seven out you who out there who remember this character from radio, Henry Aldrich. There was a series of films based on a radio character, and the film was Henry Aldrich gets glamour, and she's the glamour. And guess what? She's not so bad. And the folks out there like her. And she starts being put into more films, and then you, the public, liked her so much that the little parts that she was going to do to build her up go away, and she's thrust into a major, major, major role where she is now the female star of the movie next to big-time star Ray Moland. She hated it. She hated being in the spotlight. She hated the pressure on her to perform. Time is money. People seem to think that making a film is this party you go to, and you, you emote for three or four seconds, and then you go in your dressing room and get drunk and have a party and come out again an hour later and emote for three or four more seconds. Making films, especially in the Hollywood system of old, is long, hard work. You're there at five o'clock in the morning, getting made up, getting into costumes. The films are shot completely out of sequence because it's, it's more time effective. It saves money that way. You don't know from one day to the next which part of the film you'll be doing. You must memorize lines. They didn't use cue cards. You're working with people you may or may not like or ever see again. And it's fast, fast, fast. And in those days, it was six days a week, five o'clock in the morning, till as late at night as they wanted to keep you. If they needed you at 10 o'clock at night, you stayed there. And you better darn look good the next morning with only four hours sleep because they're going to photograph you again and your close-up is going to be on that big screen. She couldn't tolerate that kind of thing. But the family needed the money. She became the cash cow. I cannot tell you how many friends I have in show business who were child stars, a little younger than Gail. She was, for all intents and purposes, a grown-up when she started her career. I know kids who started at 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 14, 15, and they're in there. They're cute, and they are. They were all were. 
and I loved them, and they still are. And they were all talented. But their families bled them. They became the breadwinner of the family. Well, Gail had the same thing. And you know what? Every child star I know where they were the breadwinner of the family had a really hard time as adults. And so did Gail. And problems began almost from the beginning. Now, I have to talk about myself for a second here. And the only reason I have to do it is because I have the same problems as Gail had. In that, I am a recovering alcoholic. Now, uh, April 1st of 2019, I'm 30 years clean and sober. Somehow, I was able to find that place in my heart where even though I had the fear, I got the help anyway. I wanted to live. I wanted to survive. I wanted to thrive. Doesn't mean that everybody can. I'm a lucky son of a gun. I often say I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. She couldn't do it. But I had the same disease, and that's what it is. I get very tired of hearing stories about Judy Garland or Mickey Rooney or, or any of the other big stars we know who had alcohol and drug problems. And people talk about it like, oh, they should just have gone on a diet. They should have limited themselves to two glasses a day. What's wrong with them? They had everything. How could they do that to themselves? And the answer is, they had a disease. It's like saying to somebody who has multiple sclerosis, well, how could you do that to yourself? Well, you don't do it to yourself. It's something you're born with or your body develops. And I, I think those of us who are truly alcoholic and drug addicted, we're born that way. We may never take a drink and never have to face that. But if we take a drink, this is how we end up. And she took the drink. Uh, it was probably suggested to her, hey, this will calm you down. Have a belt. What could it hurt? Well, you know what? You take a belt, you have a sip or a, or a cocktail, and you know what happens? Whatever personal pain you're feeling goes away for a little while. At least it does early on. And you go, good heavens, how long has this been going on? You mean I can get, let go of the personal pain I have just by drinking a little something with ice? It doesn't work for long, but by the time you realize it doesn't work anymore, it's too late. So those of you who love Gail, don't judge her for what we're going to talk about today. It wasn't lack of morals. It wasn't lack of character. It wasn't lack of anything. What she lacked was not having the gene for alcoholism because it's in our DNA. And I think whenever we talk about famous people who are alcoholic and drug addicted, they couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. What I could do is get help for it. Now, when I got help in 1989, Miss Russell was long gone. When she needed help, 
the 12-step programs, I won't mention their names, there was only one, and it was only a few years old. It wasn't well-known across the country. The book its name is based on had not yet been published. So if you had alcoholism, if you were a chronic drunk, if it was ruining your life, your choices were a mental hospital or being locked up, period. There was no hope for you. And by the time there was help, she was so far along in her disease that unless she had some sort of spiritual awakening or hit a bottom that made her go, wait a minute, I want to live, you're done. It's the same thing with Ms. Garland. Is, is there, was there ever a more talented human being on the planet than Judy Garland? What couldn't she do? Sing, dance, drama, comedy, gorgeous, beautiful, funny. But by the time help really was available for her, that might have actually helped her to stop drinking and drugging, it was too late already. So I, I, I know I'm going on and on and on about this, but if we want to understand Gail Russell, we have to understand what she was facing. To be fair to her and for us to know, you know, these things happen. Paramount Pictures didn't harm her. They didn't want anything other than for Gail to succeed. They put her in picture after picture after picture all through the 40s. They teamed her up with people who were very good for her. She made pictures of Diana Lynn. She made pictures with Alan Ladd. She made pictures with John Wayne. John Wayne was a big booster of hers. Now, now we get into gossip. And I say it's gossip because if you asked three people in her life, is this true, you would have gotten three different answers. But Mrs. Wayne, when she divorced Mr. Wayne claimed that one of the reasons she was divorcing Mr. Wayne is that he and Gail were having an affair. Do I know that that's 100% true? I wasn't there. They did not invite me to their hotel room. I wasn't peeking in the window. I don't know. But it's what Mrs. Wayne claimed, and they did get divorced. I know that Mr. Wayne was a good friend to her because by the late 40s, she was already having problems. The problems included that Paramount was lending her out to other studios a lot. That's hard back then. It was hard because when you're at, let's, we'll use Paramount as an example. You, you know how to get there. The guard at the gate knows you. You probably have the same makeup artist who knows exactly how to make you up. The same hairstylist knows what to do with you. They've got a figure form in costuming that, that, that is built just like you to make your costumes. It's home. And you have your own permanent dressing room that you've decorated. Well, you get lent out and lent out and lent out and lent out. You're dealing with different photographers, different publicity people, different directors, different everything. Your underwear is different now. And if you're shy, like she was, it makes working more difficult. If Paramount had kept her at home, it would have been easier for her. 
they didn't because they could make more money lending her out because she was really popular. You know, Columbia Pictures, United Artists Pictures, Republic Pictures, she was everywhere. The other problem in the late 40s is that she got married. And she got married probably to the wrong guy. Because in 1949, she married Guy Madison. Now, as beautiful as Gail Russell was, Guy Madison might have been just a little more beautiful than she was. And another person, Guy was one of those early uh, beefcake guys. You know, when a woman wears a bathing suit or lifts her skirts for pictures, it's called cheesecake. When a man is wearing a bathing suit or takes off his shirt for pictures, it's called beefcake. And Guy was extraordinarily handsome, extraordinarily well-built, and I honestly believe if he were a star today, he would just do all of his movies nude because he took off as many clothes as he could as often as he could for pictures because he knew he was not a tremendously good actor, but cameras adored him. And he was very happy to feed the machine. So here is this shy, retiring girl who doesn't really want her picture taken, who is marrying a man, perhaps even more pretty than she is, who will do almost anything to get his picture taken. So their personalities are complete opposites. His ego puts him into competition with her and gossip again. They divorced in 1954. He married other people. He had children. But uh, if one talks to the people who knew him and who were around in those days, one might jump to the conclusion that on top of everything else and all the women and the children he had and the fatherhood and the husbandhood, he was also bisexual. So I didn't sleep with him. I can't guarantee this. But in talking to people who knew him, this is what I have heard. If that's true, and I'm not saying it is, that's why I'm saying gossip as opposed to fact. Another problem for an insecure person, if you're marrying someone who's sleeping around with anyone, it's very difficult to deal with. If you're marrying someone who has his choice that way, more, more more difficult for your ego, more difficult for your brain to wrap around it, more difficult to deal with it. So she's in the public eye. I, I'm, I am bringing you up to date where we are in the mid-1950s. She is gorgeous, a huge star, making lots of money, supporting all of her family, married to this incredibly good-looking narcissist who will drop his drawers at the sight of a camera coming down the street. She's working all over town, never at the same place two days in a row sometimes. And maybe, maybe, maybe he's cheating, and maybe, maybe, maybe he's cheating with guys too. So is it any wonder that a woman who's an alcoholic would start drinking even more? The pain... The pain of all of this just got to be too much for her. 
and it starts to show. Because as she's doing movies and all of these loan outs, she begins to have some bad publicity. And today, if you have bad publicity, that makes you a bigger star. Today, you get sued by someone, another star says you're sitting with their husband or wife, or you have a child out of wedlock, or you've gone into a rehab center, you're a bigger star. There's very little short of pedophilia or, without mentioning any names, drugging people into sex. That's bad publicity anymore. Any publicity, anything that gets your name out is fodder. And publicists love it, and so do the box office receipts. But in those days, every contract you signed had a morals clause in it. If they found you to be unreliable, if you did things like it found out that that you were sleeping with people you're not married to, for instance, or that you're an alcoholic, they could fire you. There's no recourse. It's, It's they who make the decision as to whether or not you have or have not given them reason to invoke the morals clause. Well, it is known around town that she's an alcoholic, and she's married to this guy who's perhaps not the best husband in the world, and they separate and get back together. That alone is almost a morals clause thing. Then John Wayne's wife socks it to them, that uh, claiming she was sleeping with John Wayne. And then, unfortunately, the drinking becomes public. See, it's one thing when Hollywood knows you're drinking, but you can hide it from the public and the press. Hollywood will protect you to this day. But once it gets in public, there's nothing the studios can do about it. Well, maybe they can. In her case, they chose not to. She wasn't looking as good. Her films weren't making as much money. Uh, She was working at smaller studios. They had no reason to protect her. So in 53, she got arrested for drunk driving. That's a huge no-no. Huge, huge no-no. Then she and Guy Madison separated and got divorced. All right, so now she's caught drinking and she's a divorced woman. I know, I know. That sounds so silly today. Half the people who get married get divorced, and half the people who are together don't get married anymore. Different times, different rules. And then she gets it again. Less than a year later, three or four months later, she's in court. Again for drinking. The other problem she and Guy had was that she was a liberal Democrat and he was a conservative Republican. Their, their politics did not match up. And in the 1950s, and the years where she's getting into trouble here, we had a Republican president, a Republican administration. We were, as a country, leaning to the right. And here was this girl getting arrested, getting divorced, getting charged with philandery it's a new word I just made that up I like it philandery philandering with John Wayne but the country is kind of conservative and not feeling terribly uh, 
accepting of her behavior. Her career almost disappears for a while. Uh, their divorce proceedings were a joke. You know, he charges her with, she won't do housework, she won't have parties. That's hardly a reason to get divorced from someone. But in those days, if you were a man, pretty much, hey, dinner isn't on the table at 6 o'clock. Divorce granted. That's who we used to be as a people. She's divorced, and now she's ill because she was drinking so much. Her liver was beginning to fail her already in 1954. She's a young woman. And her liver is failing her. That is how much alcohol she was consuming. She got a really bad attack of her hepatitis. And it's been a coma. One would think that her fans would be concerned, sympathetic. Uh, there'd be an outpouring of love. But her star had faded. Already her star had faded. In Europe, if you become a star once, you're a star for the rest of your life. Pretty much, that's it. The public has accepted you, and even if you don't work much anymore, you're still in their eyes a star. In this country, to this day, it is built on, well, what did you do last? What did we like that we've seen recently? And if you haven't done that, you are nostalgia to us. Even worse today than back then. But in those days, I was having a conversation recently with somebody in the business. And we were talking about like who is a big star today and who is left over from the days of stardom and the long, long careers. They were pointing to John Wayne or uh, Lucille Ball or Jack Benny. And I said, yeah, but for every John Wayne or Lucille Ball or Jack Benny who stayed a star the day they died, there are dozens of people from the 20s, from the 30s, from the 40s, from the 50s, and the 60s who were in the moment huge stars in films, on Broadway, on television, on records. And 10 years later, who? That's how quickly we forget our artists. And you can't blame us. People get to spend their dollars where they want to spend their dollars. People no longer wanted to spend their dollars on Gay Orsel. She gets out of the coma. She gets better. Six months don't go by. And she hits a car while drunk. And she gets sued and thousands of dollars out of her pocket. That is where John Wayne came in as a friend because he was producing a not-so-big-budget Western um, and, and gave her a part that really showed her off well. I, I don't know if they ever slept together or not. Like I said, I don't know. But he liked her. And he felt she had talent, and he put her in something that would make her look good. And there was great hope that she would be back 
right where she belonged as a big star. Remember, she'd had a fairly long career at this point. They used to say, a big star. It stays at the top for about five years. A superstar has the lifelong career. So, so Gail had, you know, been around now 14, 15 years. In those days, that's a long time to be in the public eye. And now she's had this great success, a low-budget film that made a lot of money. Money. It made a lot of money. She's bankable. Let's get her working again. And she did some television to sort of firm her up more in the people at home's eyes because it was becoming okay to do dramatic television if you were a star. There's another film in 1957. Looks like it's going to be wonderful. And then 1957, I don't know if she ever had a worse year except the year she died, but it would be hard to match 1957. She's found where she was living unconscious from drinking on her floor. She is hospitalized. She's dried out. And before you can turn around, like three months go by, and this, this, this is like the nail in the coffin. And it's, it's a tragedy. It is... Golly, they should make a movie just about this. She was driving drunk and drove into a place kind of kind of sort of in Beverly Hills called Jan's Coffee Shop. Luckily, she only injured somebody who was working there. She didn't kill anybody. But she failed her sobriety test. She was arrested for being drunk. Uh, the guy she hurt sued her. And when she was supposed to be in court to address his lawsuit, she didn't go. Where was she? At home, passed out, drinking. The court could not have been more lenient with you with her. She was fined a small amount of money, a suspended sentence, and had probation. Today, if a big star drove into a restaurant and harmed somebody, we'd be talking millions of dollars and publicity that might even ruin a career even today. And yet she still worked. She did another film for Republic. And the next couple of years, she tried. She began to address the problem in public. She began to try to spin it so that uh, it looked like she was conquering her problems. She was still loved by you guys out there enough to get press, to have magazines and newspapers talking about her. But she never really worked again. She made one more film. It was trash. And then we reached the end of her life. Uh, she, she lived alone. She couldn't afford much. She could long ago, unable to provide for her family financially. She could hardly provide for herself. She 
tried to stop drinking, and then she'd go on a binge, which is very typical of us, uh, us alcoholics, that is. You can't just, oh, I'm giving up chocolate for a month. That's not how it works. Every time she tried to stop, she'd go back and drink even more. Hospitalizations, and finally, finally, police were called one day. A couple of her neighbors hadn't seen her in a few days. Police broke into her house. Bottles of pills empty all over her floor, empty vodka next to her, and this gorgeous, shy, Midwestern girl was gone. August of 1961. She even had malnutrition, and even her death is uglier than it sounds, because although she died from the alcoholism that she had, the specific cause, and they, they used terminology in the papers back then that made it sound like what it wasn't. And I don't mean to be vulgar, folks, but what happened was that she got unconscious and threw up and choked on her own vomit, and that's what killed her. That's what stopped her breathing. Is there an uglier way to go? Does anybody deserve that? Um, pretty people don't deserve better things than not pretty people. But I have a place in my heart for people who are shy. Because I used to be shy when I was young. And people used to say, you're in the wrong business, you're shy. The only time I could be bold was on a stage or in front of a nightclub audience. I have gotten over that. I am no longer shy at all. She never got over that. She never got over the pain of her childhood, the pain of adjusting to California, her offbeat family, the financial burden placed on her, the spotlight on her that she did not want a failed marriage, the most gorgeous guy walking the planet at that time. Just, she was just beaten up, psychically beaten up by the very things she was doing to be successful. Johnny Grant, who was once the honorary mayor of Hollywood, used to receive calls from Gail requesting the same song to be played. Only days before Gail died, she called that radio station and asked him to play that specific song one more time. What is the title of the song, and why did Gail request it so many times? Here's what Jeffrey Mark had to say. The song was Stella by Starlight. The song had actually been written not for a, f a film, but about a film in which she played a character named Stella. And the song had been associated with her. And she asked them to play Stella by Starlight. And since it's 1961, the only person I know who had recorded it that year off the top of my head is indeed Ella Fitzgerald. So it may have been that Ella's album was newly out, and she wanted to hear Ella singing the song. One might wonder, where was Gail's friends and associates during her struggles with alcoholism? 
I asked Jeffrey Mark to elaborate on this and more of her sad final days. Here's what Jeffrey Mark had to say. It wouldn't be a bad question to ask, how could she die with nobody knowing? How could she be unconscious in her house over and over again? Weren't there people around? And the answer is, and this is true for many alcoholics, and I know, and it was true for me too. Perhaps we think of alcoholics as going out and uh, being drunken in bars or being drunken in what used to be called cocktail lounges. They don't seem to have those anymore. Or in a restaurant or in a nightclub or in a dance club today. But many alcoholics I know, and I was one of them, uh, it was way too expensive to buy drinks at a bar when you could buy a bottle or 12 at home for a third of the money. So I know when I drank, uh, I was rarely drunken in public. I might have been buzzed or high off of something, but not stumbling down, falling down. I did that in my home, and I did it alone. Many alcoholics do that. There's also this thing, I had relatives, I had friends. They don't want to get involved. Alcoholism, drug addiction, for me also, but for her also. It's very ugly. Uh, When you're under the influence, you're no longer pretty or handsome. You're, You're visually ugly. You're verbally ugly. Your thoughts are ugly. And most normal people, and I, I hate using the word normal because I, don't, I wouldn't know normal if it bit me on the foot because that's my life. But, but regular folks don't want to be around that. It's not fun. It's not funny to watch someone destroying themselves. And what we do is we push away anybody who might actually care about us. Nobody wants to date us. Nobody wants to engage with us on an intimate level of any kind because they don't know what they're going to get. Do you want to be naked with somebody who might go unconscious on you or throw up on you or get mean with you or physically abusive with you? No, you avoid that. Do you want to hang out with a friend who's a Jekyll and Hyde? Not particularly. Do you want to go visit a home that might be filthy or full of empty liquor bottles or hasn't been cleaned in weeks because the person is too strung out to deal with it. So, so many of our celebrities, when we read their obituaries, they died alone. You know, there, there wasn't a coterie of people all around them. It's very different. God forbid you get a serious disease besides alcoholism that brings you to your death. You're surrounded by your parents or siblings or spouse or children or dear friends who, you know, surround you in bed and talk you into going to the white light and, and you're surrounded by love. But, but the disease makes us push the, the very people who might be able to help us. It makes us push them away. And we end up alone. We end up so that the only people who might notice our comings and goings are our neighbors. Spouses give up. Boyfriends and girlfriends give up. Children get disgusted and disinterested. Parents 
throw up their hands in the air and go, you're not my kid anymore. What do you do? What do you do? And of course, it's, it's, it's that awful self-fulfilling thing. The worse you get, the more you push people away. And the more you push people away, and you see that you've pushed them away, and you get hurt, the more you drink or drug. And the more you do that, the more you do this. You cause more damage somehow. And the more damage you cause, you feel so badly about what you're doing. Because as I've said, alcoholics, it isn't that they have no moral center. They may have a wonderful moral center. And sometimes that they have one makes it worse because we become aware that what we're doing is wrong. And we do it anyway. I knew what what I was doing was wrong. I didn't at first, but I did after a while. When people would leave my home and get into car accidents, when people would leave my home in, in New York City and fall down the subway stairs unconscious, well, I drank and drugged as much as they did. If that's their behavior outside, what was my behavior like inside? And am I to blame for what happened to them? I lost people. I lost a lot of people. They didn't want to put up with my behavior. We have to assume the same thing happened to her. Uh, It's a pitiable thing. The disease of alcoholism and drug addiction, and I, I use the terms interchangeably because it's the same disease. Um, I don't have to shoot heroin to know that if I ever shot heroin, I would become a heroin addict. Uh, There's enough evidence to prove to me I have the gene, so I just avoid all of it. But uh, whether whether it's alcohol or drugs, the term is insidious because it's a never-ending spiral. It's like Having inside of your body this great big bodybuilder, okay, broad shoulders and huge biceps who is lifting weights every day to knock you down. And every day, this guy knocks you down. And the only way to stop him knocking you down is to get help and build up your own psychic muscles so that you're stronger than he is. And I'm probably losing some folks who don't understand what I mean. But it really does come down to that. Alcoholism and drug addiction is life or death. Sooner or later, almost every alcoholic or drug addict ends up in jail, ends up in a mental ward, ends up in a hospital ward because of their physicality, ends up in prison or a long-term jail, or dies. There's no happy ending to alcoholism and drug addiction. My father died from it. My grandfather died from it. My father's brother died from it. Oh, the specifics of their death may have been other things, but the other things happened because of the drinking and drugging. I didn't want to die. I was lucky. I have somewhere deep down in my soul I have this desire to live, and my desire to live was stronger than my disease's desire to kill me. I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. 30 years of sobriety isn't easy, it isn't average, 
and it's happened to me, and I'm grateful, grateful, grateful. For whatever reasons, Gail couldn't do it. The alone thing is very, very sad. But it's part and parcel of having the disease. And for those of you who love Gail, we really want you to understand this. Because it applies, first of all, to all of us who might have the disease of alcoholism. And secondly, it doesn't excuse her behavior, but it helps you to understand, especially those of you who loved her, who really enjoyed her films and her television work, who, who were admirers of her beauty, helps you to understand how someone who has all of that going for them can self-destruct. And I think we can name a dozen other people in show business through the years who also self-destructed because they had the same disease. I asked Jeffrey Mark to share more on the legacy of Gail Russell. Here is what he had to say. If I were to summarize Gail's experience in show business and her time walking the planet, I think her story is perhaps the reason why the studio system started to fail. They were so desperate for talent, so desperate for new, so desperate for pretty, so desperate for the next piece of flesh to come along, not because they didn't care about people, not because they were mean people, but because films and then television began to eat up the available talent. There was more demand for talent than there was actual talent. And being human beings, we get bored. And we want something new and someone new. And there was this woman who should never, ever, ever have been in show business. She should never have been in front of a camera. She should never have been on a soundstage. One of the hallmarks of good acting is being able to control your emotions. The idea is never for an actor to be feeling something necessarily. The idea is for the audience to be feeling something because of the performance by the actor. I'm going to give you a very good illustration of this, and it's musical. And this was something said to me when I was writing my book on Ella Fitzgerald, and they were comparing Ella to Judy Garland, who we've been talking about. And they said, when you heard Judy Garland do a love song, you felt all of her pain. When you heard Ella Fitzgerald doing a love song, you felt all of your pain. Ella survived. Judy got consumed. Their talents were extraordinary. They were both geniuses of what they did. But maybe Judy cutting a vein open emotionally every time she performed harmed her. Ella didn't do that. She worked as hard as Judy did, perhaps harder. And perhaps this, this applies to Gail. Maybe every time she emoted, it was too much for her. The idea was for us, the audience, to be moved by her acting abilities. Maybe it just took too much out of her. I don't know if in 21st century show business, Gail would even have had a place. 
I don't know that someone who had no training and no time in front of a camera would even have gotten hired for anything except maybe adult films. And I don't know that Gail's background would have lent her into that. Without having a studio pointing a finger and saying, hey, you, come over here. And redoing your makeup and redoing your hair and teaching you how to do everything. I don't know that Gail would have had a career. But if she hadn't had the career, maybe she would have had a life. Maybe she would have done something else with her life. Because acting was not a choice. It was not what she wanted. Uh, she wanted to be a commercial artist. And maybe if she'd sat at a drawing board on a stool in a room full of other people who drew, she would have had a happy long life. Maybe she would have never picked up the first drink. Maybe she would have never met a ridiculously good-looking human like Guy Madison who would have caused her so much emotional strain. Maybe she would have married some average guy who would have appreciated her for whatever it was she had and had a life. Many people say this, and if they say it to me, it applies 100 times more to big stars. Well-known I am. A big star I am not. But when I've had bumps and bruises in my life, and I've shared it with people who don't know me very well, the reaction I get was, but you're a celebrity. You've been on television. What possible problems could you have? And I look at them and I shake my head and I say, I'm a human being walking the planet. I have the same problems everybody else does. Being well-known or being on your show or being on television or being in a magazine like I was a couple of months ago, you know what that means? It means I've been on your show. It means I've been in the magazine. It means I've been on television. It, it means nothing more beyond that other than maybe I'm talented. I, I hope it means that. But it doesn't mean I don't have problems. It doesn't mean I don't have heartbreaks. Uh, it just means I'm famous a little bit. And I think she had the same thing. Uh, no one could understand what she was going through. You're beautiful. You're famous. You make money. What probable, possible problems could you have? You don't deserve our attention. And I think she deserved the attention more than most because she needed our attention. There's a wonderful line that has just come into my head from Arthur Miller's best play, Death of a Salesman. And it's the leading man's wife is talking about that her husband is, is killing himself with work and worry. And she's saying to her sons who don't understand how he ended up being this way, attention must be paid. Haunting words for Gail. Because the question you asked a while ago, why was she alone? Attention must be paid. And people had stopped paying attention in the right way. She didn't need a spotlight. She needed a doctor. She didn't need a movie contract. She needed a non-judgmental friend. She didn't need thousands of dollars a week. She needed help. And there was none for her. Because of the times she lived in, and because she didn't ask for it. 
Gail never reached a moment where she could admit, I've got a serious problem here. This is going to kill me. I don't want to die. Had she reached that in the 1950s, as late as 1961, as late as the day before she died, she could have decided to reach out and get help. She never made that decision. So if we're going to encapsulize what she left us and why we're still talking about her, she left us a lovely body of work. She left us photos of a gorgeous woman. And who doesn't like to look at beauty? But she left us a moral. And the moral is disease happens to everyone. Alcoholism is a disease, and it happens to everyone. I don't mean every single person, but to anyone. There's nothing about being a star or being famous or beautiful or rich that is armor against having this disease. And in the enlightened, I hope enlightened, 21st century, there is help. So let me twist this just a little bit. We have a large audience. We have a lot of friends out there listening, I hope. If you're listening to my voice right now and you have a problem that you think you drink too much or drug too much, there's help. Anybody who doesn't want to drink or drug anymore doesn't have to. There is a way to stop. If your damage of choice is alcohol, there is Alcoholics Anonymous. If your drug of choice is narcotics, there is Narcotics Anonymous. If you like meth, there's Crystal Meth Anonymous. If you're smoking way too much marijuana, and I know right now everybody, everybody listening probably has a couple of joints somewhere in their house, and that's fine. But if it's a problem in your life, there's Marijuana Anonymous. You don't have to do this alone. There's somebody out there willing to help you. And you can survive. And you can have a happier life. It's out there waiting for you. For all of us. We are all of us different. We are all of us unique. But none of us are that special. We're all humans walking this planet. And we can get the help. She chose not to. And look what happened. That doesn't have to happen to you. She was 36 years old when she died. I didn't want to die at 36. I almost died at 30. I got better because I wanted to. And so can you. And if Gail Russell, because you like her so much, and you like our host so much, and you tuned in today to hear us talking, and she, by hearing her story, helps you, that's the biggest legacy Gail Russell could possibly give to anybody. Because if Gail Russell, you reached out today and got help, wherever she is, she is applauding you loudly and clearly. She'll be your biggest cheerleader, and so will I. Won't you play something? It's about time you asked me that.
go on. Just a second. You made that up? Yes. But you must be brilliant. Oh, dazzling. People have to wear sunglasses. What's it called? It's a serenade. To Stella by Starlight. You mean this Stella? Mm-hmm. But it's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. Is it? Please go on. You see, this is the only way I can paint you. Some black keys and some white. And fingers that are much too clumsy. But you're in it somehow. sad. Why have you changed it? Just came out that way. If you or someone you love has a drinking problem, help is available. Please visit aa.org for more information and resources. Together, we can all do great things. Send host Stephen Brittingham your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon.